Okay, so what is foxhole Christianity? Well, it comes from the idea, obviously, of a soldier in a foxhole. Let's say I'm a soldier in a foxhole, and there's a battle raging all around me, and I'm fearful for my life. So I may say to God, God, get me through this battle in one piece. Get me out. And if you will do that for me, then I will serve you for the rest of my life uh, in full-time service. Well, the battle finishes, and I come out unscathed, uh, so God has kept his word. I get discharged from the military, get back into normal civilian life, and forget about my vow. I never do go into full-time service. Well, that's foxhole Christianity. It's not so much a commitment to God uh, or desire to serve Him. It's really just a desire to get rid of those bad consequences, the things that's bothering us, the things that are scaring us, whatever. Get rid of that. Uh, and then we go back to normal. And that's what I see here in this passage uh, that Pharaoh is doing. <clears throat> so let's um, continue with uh, Exodus. Uh, we'll be in chapter 9, starting where Vince left off last Sunday um, <clears throat> with um, chapter 9, in Exodus chapter 9, starting in verse 13. But the main point that I want to say about this um, foxhole Christianity is that it's, it's really a, an important issue with God. I've heard some people say uh, when people act that way and don't keep their, their vows that uh, they say, well, God understands. You know, you were in a bad situation, very much afraid, made kind of a rash vow, um, that you didn't really mean, and God understands all of that. Well, I don't agree with that, and we're going to see why. Um, God expects us to keep our vows and keep our promises. God understands all right. He understands we didn't keep our promise. Um, there's an example in Scripture of how seriously God takes promises or covenants, um, and that's uh, in the, the reign of Saul and David, um, back during the conquest, uh, if you're familiar with the story in Joshua 9, the Gibeonites came and uh, fooled the Israelites into making a covenant with them. And the Israelites promised they would not kill the Gibeonites. And so that was a covenant between them and uh, the Gibeonites. Well, then during Saul's reign, he started to kill off uh, the Gibeonites. Now, Saul, this was hundreds of years after the, the vow was made. Saul was not party to that, but he was violating that covenant. And so God, during the reign of David, brought a plague and said, the reason is because you broke this covenant. And this was hundreds of years later, so God takes it very seriously. Uh, it's in Joshua 9 that the covenant was made. It's in 2 Samuel 21 that the consequences of breaking it so even though the, the covenant had made, been made hundreds of years earlier, God still held the nation of Israel to it because it was a national covenant. And I think maybe that's something that I wish some people in our country would recognize, that our Constitution is actually a covenant between the government and the people. And God takes it very seriously and, and expects us not to say, well, it's a living document, we want to change it, whatever. Um, God expects us to keep our promises and our, our vows. 
Numbers chapter 30, verse 2 says, If a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do all that proceeds out of his mouth. Deuteronomy 23, 21 through 23 says, When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for it would be sin in you, and the Lord your God shall surely require it of you. However, if you refrain from vowing, it would not be sin in you. You shall be careful to perform what goes out from your lips, just as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. Now, God expects us to keep our promises and keep our word because we're to be like him and reflect his character. And he always keeps his word. He never breaks his promises. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. As he said, and will he not do it? Or as he spoken, and will not make it good? So God expects us to keep our vows. But in this passage here in, in Exodus 9 and 10, we're going to see that Pharaoh makes vows to God and then breaks them. Uh, after the consequences are removed, he goes back on his word. So I see him uh, in light of this, um, what we call foxhole Christianity. So the... <clears throat> The first passage here is the first plague. Just like uh, last week, Vince presented three plagues. Today, we're going to look at three more. And they're increasing, as Vince said, in severity. We see them much more severe here. Um, and the first one is uh, the plague of the hail in Exodus 9, verses 13 through 35, which I've called judgment from heaven. Let's start with verses 13 through 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would then have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. Still, you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will send a very heavy hail, such as has not been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, bring your livestock and whatever you have in the field to safety, Every man and beast that is found in the field and is not brought home when the hail comes down on him will die. The one among the servants of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord made his servants and his livestock flee into the house. <clears throat> but he who paid no regard to the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. So just like last time, we see the same pattern here that Vince talked about. There are three plagues. In the first plague, God brought a warning. First two plagues here, God brings a warning. Uh, the third one, there's no indication that God forewarned them. Um, but there is this warning here uh, for this first plague this morning. Um, and the first thing that we see about this, I mean, God says, I'm going to bring a hail. And it's not going to be like any hail you've known. This one is unique. But it... it was only going to come to the people who trusted in the world or trusted in Pharaoh or the government. 
The people that trusted in God would survive. The people that ignored God's word and kept their livestock and their servants out in the field would die. Um, so we see God's mercy here <coughs> in a couple of ways. Um, first of all, he didn't just destroy the Egyptians. He says, I could have killed you all off. I could have wiped you from the face of the earth, but I chose not to. And the reason he chose not to is show them who he is. And part of that is his mercy in not totally destroying them. Um, he also shows mercy here in he provides a way of escape uh, from this plague. They didn't have to die in it. They could take shelter. And he said, everyone that takes shelter is going to survive the hail. The um, ones that, that listen to God's word could put their livestock in the barn or wherever, bring their servants in, stay in the house. They would escape. But everyone that, that ignored God's word and stayed out in the field would die. God provides us a means of escape as well. We're all sinners. We all fall under the wrath of God and the judgment of God. But God has provided us a means of escape, and that's through his son. His son, Jesus, died to pay the penalty for our sins and free us from God's judgment. And so all of us that take shelter under the loving arms of Jesus will avoid God's judgment uh, and the plague that would come upon us eventually. So God here provides a means of escape. Um, then um, we see the hail that comes here in verses 22 through 26. Now the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky that hail may fall on all of the land of Egypt, on man and on beast, and on every plant of the field throughout the land of Egypt. Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. So there was hail and fire and flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very severe, such as had not been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck all that was in the field through all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. The hail also struck every plant of the field and shattered every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the sons of Israel were, there was no hail. Now this, like some of the other plagues uh, that Vince talked about, this is a direct attack uh, on another one of the Egyptian gods. In this case... Um, the attack is on the Egyptian god Newt. Uh, it's actually spelled nut, N-U-T, but it's pronounced Newt. Um, Newt was the Egyptian god of the heavens and the sky. Uh, in fact, Newt was the heavens and the sky, or the heavens and the sky were the goddess Newt. Um, so she's the heavens. And obviously the hail is coming out of the heavens, so it's God's demonstration that their God of the heavens is not anything compared to Almighty God, who's actually control of the heavens. Now, you, if you're familiar with Egyptian art, you may have seen a portrayal of Newt, the goddess Newt. She's usually portrayed in Egyptian art as a blue woman with stars all over her body, again, designating that, hey, she's the sky. Uh, she's, her body is arched over the earth, uh, her head is in the west, her feet are in the east. And according to Egyptian theology, uh, the sun comes up on the east, gets up on her back, 
during the day rolls across her back and at night sets down by her head on the other side of her body. So that's how she's portrayed to the Egyptians. So she was the goddess of, of the heaven, <coughs> the heavens and the sky. And so what God is doing here is showing that actually he's in control of the heavens and sky, which shouldn't be surprising. Um, the very first verse in your Bible, Genesis 1.1, um, says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Where does the hail come from? Well, it's coming from the heavens. And what's it striking? It's striking the earth. So God not only is the creator, he's also the sustainer of his creation. And he is in control of it. Now, the Egyptians thought that Newt was in control, but God is clearly demonstrating now Newt's not in control. She's a false god, a fake. He's the one that controls the heavens and the earth. <laughs> um, we, a lot of people today make that same mistake. We, we hear a lot about uh, man-made climate change, you know, the idea that we can change the climate. We can control the weather. Well, we may think so, but ultimately God is the one in control of the weather and the climate and everything. He controls his own creation. We also see here, as we saw last week, um, with Vince, that God makes a distinction between his people and the world. You notice there was hail throughout Egypt, but not in the land of Goshen where God's people lived. So they didn't have to worry about getting their things on the shelter. They were already under God's protection in the land of Goshen. So he makes a distinction here between the Egyptians and God's people. We also see here by this plague um, there's greater destruction than there has been in the previous plagues. But throughout these plagues, Egypt is slowly being destroyed. And the interesting thing about that, if you remember back in the very beginning of this study, when Frank was preaching, um, he pointed out what Pharaoh was trying to accomplish by enslaving um, the, the Israelites. He was trying to save his, his country and his power and stay in control of things. <clears throat> the um, Pharaoh and the Egyptians were afraid that the Israelites were becoming very numerous and that they might side with Egyptian enemies and go to war against them and destroy the country. So he thought by enslaving them, he was saving his country. He also had the benefit then of free slave labor by enslaving them, which would increase Egyptian prosperity, uh, they get the benefit of the labor without having to pay for it, so they should increase in wealth and power. And again, thought he was saving his nation by doing this. But in reality, it was that very act that was bringing on the destruction of his country. Um, so he was doing just the opposite, or getting the opposite effect of what he had intended. That still happens a lot today, too, if we ignore God's word, try to do things on our own, oftentimes we face the very consequences that we were trying to avoid. I see the, the, a lot of that politically, where uh, our government passes laws or regulations or establishes policy to accomplish a certain thing, but in the end it results in just the opposite of what they had intended. Um, so oftentimes that's a case of doing things our way 
rather than God's way. And that was the case here with Pharaoh. So it's ironic that the very thing he was doing to save his country ended up in destroying it because he refused to acknowledge God. Um, then it's interesting. Uh, Vince also pointed out with his plagues that Pharaoh is starting to lose it, losing his grip. He realizes his power is starting to fade away. Things, he's not so much in control. Uh, and here it gets uh, fascinating because he apparently confess, makes a confession and confesses his sin here. Uh, verses 27 and 28, we have his apparent confession. Then Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is the righteous one, and I and my people are the wicked ones. Make supplication to the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail, and I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. <clears throat> Pharaoh here acknowledges his sin, and he seems to be confessing. Now we know, and God knew, that it wasn't really sincere, that he was going to go back on his word, um, that he was going to continue to sin. Um, but he does make a, a confession here. And he makes a vow, just like um, the, the soldier in the foxhole. He says, if God will stop the hail, he will relent and let the people go. So um, he's confessing, but he's not going to God. He doesn't pray to God. He's still got his gods. He asked Moses to pray to God for him. So he's still not getting that relationship with God, uh, but does say he sinned, and he promises if God ends the hail, he will let the people go. The amazing thing is I see God's immediate forgiveness here in verses 29 to 33. Even though God knows uh, Moses is not really sincere <coughs> and he's going to continue in sin, still he brings uh, forgiveness, verses 29 through 33, Moses said to him, as soon as I go out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord and the thunder will cease and there will be hail no longer that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord, <coughs> the Lord God. Now the flax and barley were ruined for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bud, but the wheat and the spelt were not ruined for they ripen later. So we see God's immediate forgiveness here. As soon as Moses prays, God stops the hail, stops the storm. Um, so Pharaoh confesses, says, I've sinned, tells Moses, tell God to stop it. God stops it. God is an amazing God. He continues to forgive us. Uh, no matter how many times we sin and come to him, we don't have to be afraid because he's a very forgiving God. Uh, he forgives as often as we come to him. And he's doing the same thing here uh, with Pharaoh. And we see that uh, also, that he's always ready to forgive. In Matthew uh, chapter 18, uh, Peter comes to Jesus and says, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? Up to seven times? And Jesus says, no, I say to you, 70 times seven. Now, he wasn't saying uh, you can count up to 490 times. He's basically saying, as often as your brother comes to you and asks your forgiveness, you will forgive him. He then goes on and gives a parable about a, a wicked servant who owed money to his master, uh, couldn't pay the master, 
and the master had compassion and forgave his debt. Then another servant came to servant number one, owed him money, and said, well, he couldn't pay, give him time, and, and he'll repay it. But servant number one didn't have the mercy and, and patience that the master did. He had that servant thrown in jail until he could pay up for it. When the master heard about that, he told the, the servant number one he was wicked because he was forgiven his debt, which was greater, but he wouldn't forgive his brother. So he was cast into prison. And Jesus said, your heavenly father will treat you the same way. If you don't forgive your brother, your heavenly father is not going to forgive you. So God, God's character is forgiving, and he expects us to be the same way. And here we see it. Every time we seek God's forgiveness, he forgives. He doesn't hold things against us. He knows that we're going to continue to sin. He knows that we're sinners. But yet when we come to him and ask forgiveness, he's always ready to immediately forgive. Uh, Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his own love toward us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God doesn't wait around for us to get things perfect. He knows we can't. We'll never make that, uh, not apart from Christ. Uh, but still, while we were sinners, that's when Christ died for us, not waiting for us to, to be perfect. So he forgives us every time that we come to him, and he expects us to treat others the same way, just as he does. I also see here in this passage his mercy. Uh, notice God doesn't destroy everything here with the hail. Uh, two crops were destroyed, uh, the flax and the barley, uh, but the wheat and the spelt were saved here at this point. The flax was used primarily to make linen, and the Egyptians used the linen to make their clothes. So now, um, last week Vince pointed out that God was attacking them economically. Um, now he's getting to some of the basic things of life, clothing. So the flax is gone, so... Um, I suspect they probably had inflation on clothing like we're experiencing right now. Um, flax was gone, so you can't make linen. If you don't have linen, you can't make clothes, so the price probably went up. So in a lot of ways, nothing changes through history. Um, barley was principally a livestock feed. Uh, they fed barley to the livestock. Now they lost livestock with the plague of boils. They're losing it now with hail, so maybe they don't need as much barley because they, they're losing their livestock as well. Um, but barley was, for the poorest people, that was a food source, food supply. They would eat barley cakes. Um, they would eat um, barley soup or barley stew. Uh, so God is now affecting food and clothing, two of the necessities of life. So the plagues are getting worse and the destruction of Pharaoh's empire is getting uh, greater and greater. And I also see here God's power revealed. Um, he commands the storm to stop. The hail immediately stops. Um, so he's still in control of his creation. And stopping the storm reminds me of the story in uh, Mark chapter 4. Um, the disciples were in a boat. Uh, Jesus was in the bottom of the boat sleeping. Excuse me. And ever since my surgery, my nose has been running. I don't know why. but um, And so a storm came up, started bouncing the boat, and the disciples were in fear of their lives. They thought the storm was going to sink them, the boat was going to sink, they were all going to die. So they wake Jesus up, 
and, and say, hey, save us, there's this storm going. And after Jesus rebukes them for their unbelief, he tells the storm to quiet down. And immediately, everything is calm. And the disciples, now they're afraid, but they're afraid about something else. They ask each other, who is this guy? Who is this guy that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is he? Well, we know who this guy is. He's the creator of the universe. He's the one that created the wind and the waves. So naturally, they're going to obey him. And we see that here. God created the heavens and the earth. The hail comes out of the heavens, strikes the earth. Uh, God says, stop, and it stops immediately. <laughs> I find it uh, interesting, too, that... Uh, I find it fascinating. Out of all of God's creation throughout Scripture, I see only one created thing that God allows disobedience in, and that's us. God allows us to disobey him, you know, to ignore his commands. I don't see anything else in, in Scripture that God allows that. I always see things of nature, the wind and the waves, waves and the storms. God commands and Instant obedience. I see it even with the animals. There's Balaam's donkey and uh, the ravens, the birds that God commanded to feed um, Elijah, the prophet Elijah. They did it. They obeyed. No quarrel, no argument. Uh, when God commands angels, they immediately go to it. And nothing stops them from their, their assigned mission until God says, okay, that's enough. When God says that's enough, then they immediately stop. Now, you might say, well, what about Satan and the demons? They rebelled against God. And that's true, but still only within the limits that God has set. When I look at the demons and the evil spirits in the Gospels, I see immediate, immediate obedience. God tells them, you cast out demons. He says, get out of that person. They immediately get out. Now, a lot of times they whine. I say, well, let us go into these pigs. Um, you know, they do other things on the way out but I don't see any case where they stay in the person and say, you know, I'm not really ready to come out, Jesus. I think I'll stay here for a while. You know, tough luck. He commands, and out they come. I see everything in God's creation immediately obeying, except for us. He allows us to continue in disobedience. Now, ultimately, there will be consequences, but we're not, <laughs> don't have that immediate Obedience. Even Satan, if you remember the story in Job, he came to, to God. He had to get God's permission to do anything against Job. He was powerless. He couldn't do anything on his own. He had to get God's permission. And at first God said, okay, you can take away everything Job has, but you can't touch him. Well, Job took away his, his children, his wealth, everything he had. Some people say, well, he took away everything except his nagging wife. Um, but he couldn't sorry, he couldn't um, touch Job, couldn't affect his health or anything else because God said you can't do that. Then he comes back and complains to God, yeah, well, take away a person's stuff, that's no big deal, but strike him down and see what he does. And then God said, okay, you can attack his health, but you can't kill him. So Job gave him the diseases, the boils, everything, but could not kill him. So there are still limits. They have to obey God and obey God immediately. He allows us disobedience. And why do you suppose that is? I think it's, again, because of God's love, concern for us, and that we are special among all his creation. He doesn't want 
immediate obedience from us because we have to. He wants us to obey him freely and willingly out of our own hearts to demonstrate our love for him in return. And if you think about that, I mean, that amazes me. I see that as a great privilege that we have that nothing else in creation has. We get the option of freely, of our own, obeying God. I don't see anything else in God's creation that has that opportunity to freely obey God. But we have it. And so hopefully we'll take advantage of that. And the next time <coughs> you look at one of God's commands, think of it in that way. This is a privilege I have for obeying God. It's not an obligation or a duty. I can choose not to, but I'm going to choose to take advantage of this privilege and freely um, obeying and serving God. But that's why Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer, he says, um, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, the angels have no choice. They obey God immediately. That's what God wants and expects from us. But we get to do it willingly. And that's why he says, you know, your will be done on earth just like it is in heaven. In heaven, it's immediate obedience. That's what I want for all of you here on earth. And then yet from that, in, um, we get down to um, verses 34 and 35. And we see, remember, Pharaoh has vowed, the hail stops, I'll let the people go. Now here in verse 34, but when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not let the sons of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. So we can see he really wasn't sincere. He didn't have a desire to serve God. He just wanted to get rid of the plague. And that's what um, foxhole Christianity is. Just get rid of the thing that's bothering me. Get rid of the irritation. Get rid of the, the thing that's scaring me. And then I'll go back to the way things were, back to normal. So he doesn't keep his vow. He doesn't let the people go um, and doesn't worry about it now because the plague is over. The hail has stopped. So he goes back on his word and says, no, people can't leave. So we get to the next plague, which I have kind of tongue-in-cheek called uh, God Bugs Pharaoh uh, because now he's going to send the bugs. Um, but again, he gives a warning uh, for this plague. <coughs> um, we're, uh, this is the, the part in chapter 10, verses 1 through 20. We'll start with verses 1 through 7. <coughs> Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may perform these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your sons and of your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. And Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to submit yourself before me? Humble yourself before me. Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory. They shall cover the surface of the land so that no one will be able to see the land. They will also eat the rest of what has escaped, what is left to you from the hail. And they will eat every tree which sprouts for you out of the field. Then your houses shall be filled and the houses of all your servants and the houses of all the Egyptians, 
something which neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day that they came upon the earth until this day. And he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not realize that Egypt is destroyed? So once again, God gives warning. And this time, Pharaoh even gets a warning from his servants. They said, let the people go. Don't you see what God is doing? Our, our whole land is, is destroyed here before us. It says the locusts would, uh, would devour all the remaining crops. And they do. Even now the, the wheat and the spelt, the wheat was a, a staple crop for bread. Uh, spelt, we don't here eat much of it, but it was a, a cereal grain. So this is an attack against the food supply. Um, <coughs> But again, um, we see God's power over his creation. Genesis 1.24, And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. So God created the creeping things, or the insects, and now he's still commanding them. And he's in control again of his creation. This is also an attack on two more of the Egyptian gods. Uh, two more of their very prominent gods uh, were Isis and Serapis, a goddess and a god. And part of their responsibilities were to protect Egypt from locusts. They'd experienced locusts before, not anything like they were in this plague, but they knew what locusts could do, that they would eat up all the crops. And so their gods, Isis and Serapis, were to protect them from locusts. So God is making it clear these, again, are false gods. They can't compare to Almighty God. Uh, they're not able to stop the locusts, which God is sending on them. So they can't do the job that the uh, Egyptians uh, think they can. Uh, but again, we see here another compromise uh, on Pharaoh's part. Uh, if we look at um, verses 8 through 11... Um, it says, um, So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go serve the Lord your God. Who are the ones that are going? Moses said, We shall go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds. We shall go, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. Then he said to them, Thus may the Lord be with you, if ever I let you and your little ones go. Take heed, for evil is in your mind. Not so. Go now, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you desire. So they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. So Pharaoh here is still trying to maintain control, trying to keep uh, his power, stay in control of things. So again, he offers a compromise, or tries to offer a compromise, to keep him with some measure of control. He says, okay, okay, you want to go, your men can go, but the women and children have to stay behind. Now, obviously, what he's thinking is if the men go out into the wilderness for a while, they're going to come back because they don't want to abandon their wives and their kids. So he's basically holding them captive, saying, all right, I'll let the men go, but you know the rest of the family stays here. So again, making a compromise. Um, <laughs> but... Um, God's not having any of it. God doesn't deal with compromises. As one 
One pastor used to say, God doesn't say, let's make a deal. God says, this is the deal. And that's what's going on here. He says, no, everybody has to go, all the livestock, all the, the women, children, everything goes. Uh, so Pharaoh offers this compromise, uh, but it doesn't work. Um, so the locusts come, uh, verses um, 14, actually 13 to 15. Well, starting in verse 12, I guess. Um, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come up on the land of Egypt and eat every plant of the land, even all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord directed an east wind on the land all that day and all that night, and when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. The locusts came up over the land of Egypt and settled in all the territory of Egypt. They were very numerous. There had never been so many locusts, nor would there ever be so many again. For they covered the surface of the whole land, so that the land was darkened, and they ate every plant of the land and all of the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Thus nothing green was left on tree or plant of the field throughout all the land of Egypt. So now they are in big trouble. They're losing all their, their food. They're losing their economy, uh, lost their clothing. Now their food is just about gone. So the Egyptians are really getting into a dire situation here, um, losing everything. Um, everything's disappearing, all their fruit, all their crops, uh, everything gone. So Pharaoh again then uh, appears to make a confession once again in verses 16 and 17. Uh, then Pharaoh hurriedly called for Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, please forgive my sin only this once and make supplication to the Lord your God that he would only remove this death from me. So again, he says, I've sinned. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against God. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, pray to God for me. Have him take away this plague. And he kind of gives himself away here when he says, just take away this death from me. He really still has no desire to serve God. He just wants to get rid of all these locusts that are eating everything up and you know, stepping on them and just you know, get rid of them. <clears throat> but he does make a confession. And once again, we see God's immediate forgiveness. Um, in, um, in that um, God, in, God gets rid of the of the locusts, um, in verse 18, then he went out from Pharaoh and made supplication to the Lord. Uh, so the Lord shifted the wind to a very strong west wind, which took up the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not one locust was left in all the territory of Egypt. So even though God knows uh, Pharaoh's confession is not sincere, he's going to go back on his word, still, he confesses, and once again, God forgives and removes the plague, gets the locust out of there. He's a very loving, very forgiving God. He gives us every chance in the world, and he does here with, uh, with Pharaoh. But yet again, the plague is gone, and Pharaoh again hardens his heart and goes back to his, his old ways. Verse 20, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the sons of Israel go. 
So once again, he's made a promise. He's made a vow. God, if you'll get rid of the locusts, I'll let the people go. And once again, when the, the danger is gone, then he doesn't keep his word. Again, just like a, we said about foxhole Christians. So everything left from the hailstorm uh, had been destroyed, and still Pharaoh hardens his heart. So we get to the last plague for this morning, and I've called that turning from darkness to light. And, and this plague, again, apparently comes without warning, um, but it's darkness. So we look at um, verses uh, 21 to 23. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from its place for three days. But all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. <laughs> um, this is not just you know, darkness like night. This is a total darkness. It says a darkness that could be felt. I've experienced that. Maybe you have. I've been in underground mines when the light goes out, and you can feel the darkness. Um, they used to, I don't think they do it anymore, but it used to be in Carlsbad Caverns, you'd go down into the, the cave and the caverns, and they'd turn out the lights. So maybe you've experienced that. If you have, you know what this total darkness is like, uh, that you can feel it. it. You literally cannot see your hand right in front of your face. It's, it's total darkness. You're afraid to move because you can't see anything. It's like total blindness. Um, I don't think they do that anymore in Carlsbad Caverns, but maybe you did back in the days. They still do that in that cave in Colorado Springs. I think it's the Cave of the Winds. Something. They take you there and they warn you. They say, we're going to turn out the light so you can see how dark it gets. Lights go out and it's just oppressing the darkness. That's the kind of darkness there was here in Egypt uh, for three days. Total, complete darkness. Um, <coughs> and I think this represents spiritual darkness. Of, of Egypt. Um, in John 8, 12, it says, Again, therefore, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. First uh, John 1, 5 through 7, And this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So I think um, what God is demonstrating here, again, is a distinction between his people, who they still have light. They're still walking in the light. But the Egyptians are walking in darkness. I think a reflection of the spiritual darkness that they are undergoing. Also, if we look back at Genesis 1, verses 3 and 4, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. So again, God is the one that created the light, and he still controls it, still in charge of it. This is another attack, and this is an attack on the supreme God of the Egyptians. Their top number one God was the sun, <clears throat> sun god Ra. And so here God brings a darkness and shows your sun God can't bring any light. 
You know, he's not a God. Uh, he, can't, he can't deal with anything from Almighty God. Ra was a false god, had no power. God controlled the light. Ra, the sun god, could not shine uh, in the presence of God Almighty. It's also an attack on Pharaoh, who, according again to Egyptian theology, was actually the incarnation of the god Ra. So there's a close association. Pharaoh was basically um, Ra, God, on earth. And Pharaoh is powerless to stop the darkness um, that God was bringing. Um, so Pharaoh has no control over the darkness. It's an oppressive darkness. Uh, but again, Pharaoh compromises. Um, we look here at, at uh, verses 24 through the end of this chapter. Then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Only let your flocks and herds be detained. Even your little ones may go with you. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice them to the Lord our God. Therefore our livestock too shall go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we shall take some of them to serve the Lord our God. And until we arrive there, we ourselves do not know with what we shall serve the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Beware you do not see my face again, for in the day you see my face you shall die. And Moses said, You are right. I shall never see your face again. So again, Pharaoh here, losing control but trying to stay, trying to maintain it, offers another compromise. This time he says, okay, okay, your women and children can go with you, but your livestock has to stay here behind. And I think two reasons for that. For one thing, he's, he's probably expecting if they leave but all their livestock stays there, they're going to have to come back because they can't survive in the wilderness without food and their livestock is, is some of the best food they'll have. So again, it's his way to kind of compromise, let them sort of serve God but get them back uh, eventually and, and keep them in bondage. He also may be thinking, gee, we've lost a lot of our lives, livestock in these plagues. If they leave and they don't come back, well, we can take their livestock and rebuild our flocks and our herds. So again, there's selfish motivation here um, on Pharaoh's part um, in his compromise. And then notice now he's come to the point where he's totally rejecting God. I don't want to have anything more to do with you. Up until now, every plague, he calls in Moses and Aaron. Um, here's the word of God. Now he says, I don't want to hear God's word anymore. I don't want to hear any more of this. I just want to be done with that. I want to be, I want to be cleared from it. Um, a lot of people in our culture have also reached that point. Right? That's why they don't want to see prayer in schools. I don't want to have anything to do with God. I don't want to be reminded of God. So no praying. Don't, don't pray in front of me. I don't want to see the, uh, the, the players, sports figures, uh, kneeling in prayer you know, out on the field. I don't want to see that. I don't want to have anything with God. I don't want to see the Ten Commandments posted in public buildings. I don't want that reminder of God. I don't want to see uh, people coming to school or, or in the shopping mall wearing a cross or some other Christian symbol you know, on their jewelry. I just don't want to have anything to do with it. Well, that's where Pharaoh has come. And God has now reached the end of his patience as well. God is a very patient God. 
we've had up till nine up till now uh, we've got nine plagues god is is slowly revealing more and more um, slowly getting more and more to pharaoh um, and he's been very patient with pharaoh but now his patience is about gone too and moses says okay that's it you get no more from god you're not going to hear his word anymore you don't want to hear it you cut off and that's a frightening place to be and God finally says, okay, now you're beyond, you're beyond help. So I'm not even going to give you uh, my word. So that brings us to the end of, of this study for today. Um, and this passage shows us uh, God's creation and his control over his creation, that he is in charge of everything. We are not. Sometimes we think we are. Uh, with man-made climate change and stuff, but God's really the one in control. Uh, also shows us there's penalty for sin. As, as Pharaoh continues to sin, the penalties become more and more. And also see, if you make a vow to God, you promise him something, you better keep it. So let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your patience, and we are awestruck that out of all your creation, you've singled us out for special privileges, that we look at all the miracles of your creation, all the things in, in space and in the universe, all the great and mighty things that you have done, that we can feel very, very small. But yet, out of all of that, you have chosen us to have a special place in your heart. For that, we thank you. And we praise you and give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.